0: Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is family defense attorney and advocate Diane L. Redleaf. Her new book is They Took the Kids Last Night, How the Child Protection System Puts Families at Risk. The United States practices child welfare like no other country in the world. In the name of child protection, it removes children from their families temporarily and permanently. Diane Redleaf, a pioneer defender of parents and families, shares the stories of what happened to six families whose children were wrongly seized by child protection services. As the stories unfold... Each family faced a deck stacked against them, including a series of established policies and protocols that presumed guilt and forced them to prove their innocence through arduous legal processes that took weeks to several years. Redleaf, a graduate of Stanford Law School and former partner in the law firm of Lair and Redleaf, has served as executive director and legal director of the Family Defense Center in Chicago, an agency she founded. Welcome to the show, Diane. Nice to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, first question is, where did they took they t- and they took the kids last night? Uh, where did that title come from?
1: Uh, it came to me in a flash, actually, and it was two years ago. Actually, be- before uh, before we had a lot of uh, news about families being separated. Um, it's about families and the the. Uh, continental U.S., um, but uh, it just uh, came to me. I was at dinner and just had the title <laughs> just, uh, because that's what it's about is uh, when the state the comes and, and takes the kids.
0: Well, you say in your book and you say that the CPS, the Child Protective Service System, assumes the worst and treats the parents accordingly. Can you explain that? What do you mean by that?
1: So I think when, as soon as there is a hotline call, and we can talk about what's involved with that and how many of those there are and all of that, but as soon as there's a hotline call, uh, there's an assumption that immediately starts to happen that, uh, A, we have to take it seriously, which is understandable, but B, that uh, when in doubt, we're going to believe that it's true. Okay, so we're going to act as if we believe that abuse has occurred uh, or neglect has occurred, and therefore the parent, the child needs to be protected from the parent. Um, guilty so, until
0: proven innocent is that what you're saying, as opposed to innocent until you're proven guilty? It starts with the
1: hotline call and the response that we we believe that the safest course is to take action that protects the child from the parent as if the parent is guilty.
0: Diane, so what then starts? What's put in place? Who's involved in this?
1: um, So what starts is uh, as soon as a hotline call alleging abuse is accepted by the system, a caseworker will go out to the home um, or sometimes go out to the school if the child's at school. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, try to come into the home. We'll ask to come into the home. Most of the time we'll go into the home. Uh, and they have to make the critical decision, uh, is this child going to be removed from this home? Uh, and sometimes they're not ready to make that decision, uh, but they will tell the parent that they need to separate from their child um because otherwise the child's going to be taken. Now, they might not have enough information to actually take the child, but they tell the parent, you know, separate from the child. So that is a process that is happening very often uh, under the radar, and then there's no way for the parent to get out from under that. You know, there's no right to counsel. There's no system of justice that follows from that. Um, The parent is kind of stuck. Uh, that's the oh, way, Let me backtrack uh, a little bit. First of all, I just, want,
0: I just want to, I'm interrupting you because I want to know, first of all, in terms of numbers, how often does this happen? And, and number two, in terms of demographics, uh, because does this happen in middle class homes, upper middle class homes? Are we talking about civil rights issues here? Uh, somebody comes to your house and says, you know, we got a call saying you're abusing your kid. We can just take your kid now and you have to let go of them. That's three questions in one, but you can start with the. <laughs> First one.
1: Yeah, so, so just to give a perspective on the overall numbers, I mean, the numbers are staggering in terms of the overall size of the system. Uh, 7.4 million kids were called to the attention of child abuse hotlines in 2016, which is the last year we have data for. Now, fortunately, uh, you know, those cases get, uh, triaged a lot. Uh, but then mistakes can be made in the triage process all the way through to the uh, decision that gets made ultimately uh, to, to put the kids in a foster home versus uh, and, and declare the parents guilty and make a decision on that, uh, on the merits of the allegation. What's the triage Um,
0: process? I think you have to explain that. What do you mean by the triage triage. process?
1: By triage, I mean that there are 7.4 million children called to the attention of hotlines in the United States in different states. It's a state-by-state system. So the the person on the other end of the hotline uh, will sort the call out and decide, well, is this actually a call that we need to um, do something about? And about... 60% of the time, yes, they're going to send someone to the home um, or to the school um, or refer the family immediately to a community uh, service, but mostly it goes into an investigative process. Um, And at that point is when the caseworker comes to the home and really has a broad discretion, very broad discretion to make a decision Uh, right then and there as to how they're going to treat this family.
0: So then what happens after that? The caseworker is the one who decides, okay, we can take these kids away or there is some, or they suspect abuse. And you're talking about an enormous amount of kids, 7.4 million. And I'm comparing that, and I think you've talked about this as well uh, in, in referring to what's happening at our borders, taking our kids away from parents. This happens more often than what's happening at our borders oh, right yes, now, yes, yeah. way
1: more often, three hundred times in May alone. In May alone, so when we came to the national attention, it is a uh, and it goes goes on, uh, you know, at homes, at schools, at places where children are, um, and we, it's not photographed, <laughs> <laughs> so we we, it's harder to see. It's well, harder to outlined, see what's happening. You've
0: outlined six stories, obviously, of families in your book. Let's take one or two of those stories and talk about them and put all of this in a context.
1: Yes, so the stories in my book are all medical stories. Um, I chose those stories deliberately. Um, They're not necessarily the most frequent of the types of stories coming to the attention of child protection, but I thought they were ones that the average, ordinary person could understand because they all involve a injury to a child, young child, that could happen to anyone, a fall um, that results in uh, an injury and the family goes to the <clears throat> emergency room to check it out and a hotline call gets made. Uh, either because the parent's story about what happened isn't believed or because the parent really genuinely doesn't know uh, what happened. Uh, so uh, the first of the stories in my book um, was a, basically a, a pretty simple and easy-to-understand uh, medical story. So the father was holding his baby in his arms and he was standing on a porch and he fell backwards. And in order to avoid hitting his other child who was about a year and a half who was standing right there, um, he, he, he fell deliberately in a particular way and he released the baby and the baby fell too. So... The 911 was called. They go to the emergency room. The baby, um, you know, has some scratches, and so does the father. Nobody really questions that there was a fall. But what happened then was that that they took a, <clears throat> and they find a small bleed on the, the baby's head, a subdural hematoma. But they do a, another scan and they see what they think is a chronic uh, second bleed uh, on the baby's brain. So at that point, there's a hotline call because the parents could not explain this second bleed. And the family is told, just as I said, that they need to separate right away. So there's, there's an assumption of guilt that the parents did something. And not only the parents, but anybody who was with the child. So only certain relatives could care for the child. They had to not have had contact with the children um, during the period that they thought this bleeding might have happened. So this went on for 43 days. The family was separated. The the, um, children went to live with relatives, um, they're under the microscope with the CPS system, you know, any false move, and they could have their kids taken, and they were fearful the whole time. Um, and at the day 43, they say that, the, the, that they can go home, the kids can come home, um, and at the end, uh, on, uh, they say that they're going to make a finding that this child was abused, yeah, But they don't know who did it. So they leave that on the, on the record. They put that finding, uh, we can talk a little bit more about what that means, um, into a child abuse register. And this child has been declared to be an abused child. But living at home with this kind of cloud on the family's record, but no statement that the parents were guilty. Well, on day 61 they reversed themselves and they said it was unfounded totally and the reason was they reread that second slide and found it wasn't a bleed after all it was a mistake
0: i'm going to stop you there because that is a terrifying story i mean it really is i'm I, it it's it's almost it, it seems almost impossible that they can do that to to me to families. And then the aftermath of what happens, and I think you you do talk about this, that the shame that that families would feel and the the you know the sort of the res the emotional residue is so negative. they and oh, I mean, it would just leave this kind of cloud over right. the, the Yeah, you know, I'm thinking. I um,
1: I actually just realized uh, 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 one of the harms that I hadn't even been aware of, and I wrote this book, and I'm still not aware. uh, As I was releasing the book, I invited the families to come get their inscribed copies um, and have a little gathering. And one of the parents, you know, was happy to come, except that I invited all the families to come with their kids. And she didn't want to come with her kids because their incident happened eight years ago, and the kids don't know. And so they didn't want to come to see a book, you know, with this title, and the kids would naturally ask, and they're very curious, you know, why are we at this party for a book like this? (laughs) And yeah. so I realized, oh my gosh! I mean, this well, it was something. It creates long all these in the kinds past. of
0: family secrets, I guess. I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, this is something that sort of relates to what you've written in the book and what we're talking about. But I had three boys, so you can imagine three boys, all of them athletes, skiers, snowboarders, swimmers. Uh, tennis players and with boys and athletes, they're always getting hurt. And there was one time when one of my boys fell and it was uh, snowboarding and he broke his wrist and we had to go to the uh, ortho, orthopedist. You know, he goes to the orthopedist and he gets bandaged up and fine. the next week, one of the other boys is playing, I think it was basketball and broke his ankle and I'm back there a week later. And the radiologist looks at me and he says, didn't I see you here last week? And I said, yes, well, that was with another son. And and just for a moment, it went through my head. Are they going to think that I'm abusing my children? Uh, and, and it just, you know, it was sort of just a flash, but it kind of relates to what you're saying. And obviously these events were not related. These were three boys who played a lot of sports, but I can see how it can happen.
1: Yes, and it can happen in all sorts of different ways. I mean, so it, if you imagine that, There are parents who are contending for custody, for example. Um, That happens a lot. And if there is any mark or scratch or scrape or, you know, to say nothing of a fracture that one of the parents can't explain um, or there's a finding that, you know, that there is one and the parent, you know, it could even be a mistake. You know, this gets used then by parents who are contending with each other. You know, so yes, the state can get embroiled and it can make things much harder for the family, and they have to deal with the trauma and the shame, you know, more or less on their own, not even realizing how this system works.
0: You know, in the last story in your book, uh, a family actually lost its two children because of mistaken conclusions about statistics. So yes. the question is, yeah. So how what how did that come about, and and, and what's the, actually do you know the status? What what what's happened since? Well,
1: that family um, was actually had a child uh, who had an unexplained um, fracture, uh, and when uh, the child was examined, they saw some healing, uh, a, a single healing rib fracture. So he had a, a leg fracture, uh, was about uh, eight months old. Uh, and there was a do- big dog in the house, there was an older brother, uh, there was, uh, the parents worked, and so there was a nanny who was caring for the for the uh, child at home, the two children at home. So uh, when it was discovered, um, they had no idea how it happened. Um, and what happened in the case was that the uh, fact the mere fact that there was a detected rib fractured was viewed as almost per se child abuse it was viewed as a a likely child abuse explanation so there was an immediate removal and as the, they never developed a bit of evidence to suspect any parent or or the nanny for that matter in terms of any kind of deliberate um, maltreatment. There was no history of any violence or substance use or domestic violence or any of the kind of red flags that you would associate with, you know, we have to keep a watch on this family. But the child abuse pediatrician who was the um, same person who was at the hospital caring for the child uh, gave the opinion that it was likely child abuse simply because it was a rib fra- there was a rib fracture involved, and he also said that he gives that same testimony in every case. So it had nothing to do with the specifics of their family. He would say any time there's a rib fracture, it's likely abuse. Well, he he was really misreading statistics and giving that opinion.
0: What that's really scary stuff for another reason is you're going to have families who hear about this, who are part of the community, who then aren't going to bring their children in when they need care, when they need to go to the emergency room for fear of uh, that going, their children may be taken away from them, especially in probably disadvantaged communities, people who don't know the system or uh, don't have access to an attorney or don't have access to let the organization that you founded, which I want to talk about because um, – Tell us more about your, your family defense organization, what you, know, what you do, and, and exactly how that works in the system.
1: So, um, really, because of the seriousness of these uh, issues and the need for families to have access to attorneys who can navigate, help them navigate this, uh, I founded an organization in 2005 Called the Family Defense Center. Uh, I left that organization in 2017, and in 2018, um, I am I co-founded a, a parent-led group called Family Justice Resource Center, uh, and that is continuing to help uh, families with medical medically involved cases to, you know, help them access attorneys and help them access um, medical resources. Um, I have to say it's challenging to find doctors who are willing to speak up and um, They, uh, the hospitals tend to have these child protective services teams. Those teams work very closely with state's attorneys and with child, with the police, with the child protection establishment, and they don't necessarily tell the parents that they have contracts to do that, um, and that the parents are, you know, speaking to them, and what they say goes straight to the police. Um, So this is a big problem. So uh, this parents- is kind
0: of a secretive system. I mean, people don't realize that the doctors, the caseworkers, the lawyers in this case, in the child Prote- protective services are kind of in, can be, I should say, uh, in cahoots with one another. And the parents themselves have no idea. We're sort of That's in the right. It's
1: not. They're there. not given notification at the point that there's a hotline or a uh, even a, you know an investigation at the hospital. Uh, but you know, parents, I've seen usually. I mean, it's treated like it's a police interrogation. The parents are separated. Um, the caseworkers come to the hospitals. Um, they're uh, actually, uh, in some cases, the doctors would be advocating for family separations. We've had cases like that where the doctors are, you know, the ones pushing to separate. I mean, this is all, you know, I wrote an, a report uh, a few years ago about the ethics of this, and it's, it's very ethically troubling from a point of view of medical ethics, for doctors to be involved in interrogations of, pa- of parents and to be involved in, you know, advocacy for family separation. But it's, well, it has happened.
0: Well, lawyers, lawyers uh, for the parents have often been called child abuse deniers. So speak to us about that.
1: Well, right. I think that that has been part of the dynamic of these cases is that in trying to Really argue for a level playing field or, you know, what we cons- would consider a presumption of innocence. You know, if you're arguing on behalf of somebody who's been accused of something terrible, uh, you can be challenged as, you know, uh, it called a child abuse denier and, and that has happened, uh, often, uh, for, for parent attorneys and, and it makes it, uh, uh, you know, a much more conflictual and uh, situation and, and polarized. It's a polarized fe- playing field, even though we're all supposed to be working in the best interests of children.
0: Well, in your book, you, you're very specific at the end. You give, you conclude with concrete and practical recommendations, things that parents can do. So talk to us, we, we don't have that much time left, so talk to us about some of, of those kinds of things that what, what, what we can do probably is, and as community people who are concerned as social workers and others and, and physicians and other lawyers who are involved in, or could be involved in this process.
1: Well, I think it starts with the hotline call because we've heard so much that, you know, see something, say something. I want to challenge people to, to think, see what, say what because there are consequences to calling the hotline and causing a potential major disruption in a child and a family's life. So it ought to be something serious. Here in, in Illinois there was a case of an 8-year-old a girl who was walking her dog around the block and uh, somebody called the hotline to check it out. Well, There was a very traumatic investigation that happened. And obviously, do we want to discourage parents from letting their children walk their dog? I mean, this is what has happened as a result of this massive hotline calling system. So I would start there, and that's something that each person can do, is to really think through, talk through, really be more certain that there really is a cause to bring the state into this family's life, and there C- might be, and then of course when there is, um, we need to have people um, making those calls. But beyond and that, and who's sitting I mean, on if, the?
0: And I want to say, the, uh, there's a. I want to stop you there. The CPS Child Protective Service hotline call centers, who's actually sitting there, and are they overstressed? Do they have too many calls and, and not enough people, and maybe not enough people who are qualified to answer those calls?
1: Yes uh, that's all true and I think that we've seen whenever there is a, a celebrated case um, as in the state of Pennsylvania the state of Pennsylvania has had massive increases um, in their hotline calls um, and in their removals um, it's uh, Philadelphia now has uh, the highest removal rate in the in the country and and that's because you know we see these celebrated cases because there was the Penn State you know, scandal, and that causes this up, uptick. So the people responding, you know, have to figure it, it out, and there is high turnover in those positions um, on, uh, responding at the, on the hotline uh, calls, uh, and they have to code the information and then send it to the field, and there can be mistakes along the, that way in terms of what's getting reported, second and third hand. And so you can see that, you know, it's rife with error. This is a system that is rife with error. So people just need to be aware. um, And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that the book will help build awareness without at the same time terrifying everyone because I don't necessarily want everyone to decide to change their lives just because there's a possibility of something bad happening.
0: Now, uh, and I want to, We have a couple minutes left. So the title of the book is "They Took the Kids Last Night: How the Child Protection System Puts Families at Risk."s And I, I think you're right. We do need to have awareness, and your book's do your book does just that. Uh, Diane Redleaf, uh, we we've, attorney we've been talking to. She's a family defense attorney and advocate. Uh, Diane, uh, could you please tell us again the websites that we can go to? Uh, that will give us more information about you and about the book?
1: So I have a uh, website, which is www.familydefenseconsulting.com. And the book is also available on Amazon.
0: All right. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information and doing these kinds of things and being uh, on the radio and television and, Obviously, your book gets the word out there. And uh, again, the statistic, over 7 million children are considered suspected victims. They're
1: called. Called. They're not all determined, but they're subject to this. Yes.
0: Subject to this. So it is a a huge problem. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Great having you here
1: today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station voiceamerica.com
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show.
1: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Opinion. Hear me. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Beth Ricconati, MD, physician and author of Braided, A Journey of a Thousand Hollas. What if the act of making bread, mixing and kneading, watching and waiting, could heal your heartache, your emptiness, and your sense of being overwhelmed? Well, it can. This is the surprise that physician Beth Ricconati learned when she started baking challah. That simply... Stopping and baking bread was the best medicine she could prescribe for women in a fast-paced world. Dr. Riccanati has built her career around bringing wellness into women's everyday lives, having practiced at Columbia Presbyterian's Women's Health Center in New York City and the Cleveland Clinic's Wellness Institute. She's featured on Access Hollywood, Good Day Los Angeles, and in Nutrition and Metabolism. Welcome to the show, Beth. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Good morning. You've made, and I'm challah, and I am somebody who eats challah, but I've never made it. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, difficult to do, it would seem to me. And you've made challah from scratch every Friday. It says give or take a few for the past 10 years. So what inspired this tradition?
2: Absolutely. So about 10 years ago, when I was a really busy physician and a mom with three young kids, I was completely overwhelmed and just feeling like I couldn't get it together. And in the fall of that year, a dear friend of mine suggested to me, for the Jewish New Year, why didn't I make challah? And I had never made challah. I'd never made bread. And the idea seemed ridiculous. But somehow, something that she said to me that day really resonated and I gave it a go. And I made the Hala. And it was incredible. Because for that amount, that half an hour that I was at the kitchen counter, I was just there. I wasn't on my phone. I wasn't sending an email. I wasn't picking up the kids' toys or folding the laundry. I was just making the bread. And I was present.
0: And it felt fantastic. And so it got even kind better because a couple hours later. Of- of- Well, this is an exercise, as you've described it, in mindfulness. It's actually a mindfulness exercise or activity. It sounds like that's what it's done for you. That is
2: exactly what it has done for me. I have found a way to weekly remind myself and to practice how to be present. And I feel better, so it's easy to keep doing it because... It's it's like one of those lovely cycles where it feels better, so I do it. I do it. It feels better, et cetera, and here we are 10 years later and over a 1,000 hollas and a book. It's fantastic.
0: And talk to me about the people who appreciate it because not only are you doing it, staying in the moment, as you say, you're not taking care of the kids or practicing medicine, you're just engaged in this activity which has a mindfulness quality about it. Maybe is the second part of that? people appreciate what you've done as well. I mean, I'm assuming after 10 years, you should be good at it and your holla should be good. (laughs) (laughs) Or or am I making an assumption? Uh, I don't know.
2: No, let's hope so. No, actually, it it is such a simple, easy recipe. It's just six ingredients. It is practically foolproof. And uh, yes, I think it's, Yummy, 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 and we have Friday night dinner every Friday night at our house, and the kids often bring friends over, so everybody enjoys it in in that sense. But then, in a larger sense, one of the things that I've learned through this activity is this whole idea of community, and one of the wonderful things that has happened is I often make challah now with other women, and and I'm, I'm I'm building a building my community through this through this activity. So lots of people get to enjoy it, which is really, really fun.
0: You're doing the opposite of what most women have done. Like you're a physician and not just a physician. You've been at Columbia, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, you know, a very well-respected Uh, obviously physician and now you're baking bread and uh, you remember Hillary said what do you want me to do stay home and bake cookies because I'm not doing that and (laughs) so you did the physician thing and now you're baking the bread it's actually just the opposite and establishing a community of women who are doing this Um, what about though if you have other people there does that take away from the mindfulness or the calmness of it because that's kind of a different goal isn't it
2: that's a really great question. What, what happens when there are other women and myself around the kitchen counter is we're sharing stories while we're making the bread. And it's a really powerful moment to just stop and be together in that moment and honor that time for showing up.
0: Have you? How many women do you have? I mean, is it? A, I would assume it's not a large group of women, but yeah.
2: No, usually, usually it's it is a small group. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's in, it's sort of enough around around the kitchen island. Um, however, since the book has come out in September, I've been making Hollywood groups of women, um, and so we we might meet in in a larger kitchen, for example. So I've made I've made hala with, with you know groups up to maybe twenty five women, um, and it's it's obviously different. You're right. It's you're not having that sort of intense, quiet, mindful moment, but you're having another experience, sharing stories together. And I find that's really powerful to come together. It's, I don't have many other opportunities where I've where I've done that in my life, where we just take time to to be together.
0: Doing so you have something women- supporting each other yeah. it almost like it's almost sounds yeah. like a therapy session i'm maybe i should put that in quotes <laughs> but it's kind of similar to that a group therapy session i should say uh, of women telling I think their you're stories. right
1: in some regard yeah
0: absolutely but you don't just share yeah, your stories I, think- I assume you help each other and give advice and this is and then a second part of that question is What's the demo what's the makeup of the women? I mean, I'm s they're not all physicians. They're are they? They're from no, 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 no. 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 no.
1: Although maybe physicians
0: I mean, it's should really do that. Fun. Women,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really fun. I've made hollow with, with kids and I've made hollow with grandmothers and everybody in between. And one of the really fun things that I'm I'm realizing since the book has come out is how many people do have Mindful rituals such as making hala. I mean, maybe maybe they, if they they bake other things, or or, or they have other activities that, that matter to them. Um, but it's not an age; it's not limited to age. It's not limited to gender. It's not, uh, across the board. I just feel that it's really, really important that you have a meaningful ritual in your life. And and for me, that's making hala once a week. And but I don't care what what it is one chooses. I just really care that that you have something. So maybe you're a gardener or maybe you're a dancer or maybe you fill in the blank. Um, I just think it's so important for our health and well-being to have these kinds of behaviors in our lives.
0: Well, this kind of behavior sounds like it's the opposite of being a physician, is it? So you're doing something different. You're not doing something that's necessarily related to medicine and that that's, get you out of uh, your sort of normal routine and that maybe that's something we should do. I mean, if you're a dancer, maybe you should do something else besides dancing that is calming and relaxing and um, isn't something that you necessarily do in your profession.
2: I think it could probably swing either way. Um, you're right. In my case, I mean, I, t- I this is a behavior. It, it not in the office, it's in my kitchen, <laughs> um, but I suppose w- whatever brings you that, that sense of, of peace and well-being counts in my book. I just think that we're living in such a stressful time, and it's really important to to acknowledge that and then to figure out, okay, well, how am I going to manage my stress? Because it's really important to manage our stress, I and mean, stress can make us sick, so you know, I, it just can't. I see this at work. I see that, you know, my, in my, as a doctor, I see it in my life as a, as, as a mom. And it just, we have to have ways to manage stress. So I find such joy in making HALA every week, and that, that's how I do it. And I love that, you know, everybody has, has their way, but they have to have a way in my opinion.
0: I think the other thing is you're staying in your home. You know, you say it's important to manage stress because we live in this kind of chaotic, stressful world. And a lot of people, instead of, or and we'll say women, don't stay home uh, to calm down. They feel that they have to get out. They have to go to the gym. I mean, I have friends who are supposedly trying to calm down, but they're running back and forth to a gym and, uh, you know, with all that. And, and it doesn't seem to me necessarily, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going and exercising at a gym, but maybe doing something like what you're doing would be more calming if you could stay in your own home and not be running back and forth and, and sort of adding to that, to the chaos and to the stress. Well, certainly
2: I have chosen in hindsight a, a uh, an easy activity in that sense, because you're right, it's it's here um, at home. And, and that certainly takes out some of the other Elements, um, but I've had the pleasure in the last few months as I've been on this a uh, book tour of meeting people who have all kinds of meaningful rituals in their lives. Like I met a woman who does salsa dancing. She has she you know she has to go to to do that. So I th- I think it's it it probably doesn't matter where you do it or what you do, just that you are aware of having um, behaviors like this in your life that that help to ground you and keep you present keep you mindful. I think that's so great.
0: I know there's one question people have asked you, and it has to do with what you are baking and what the ingredients in the challah is. Okay, because you're a physician, and we talk about nutrition, yes. and it is, it's white bread, <laughs> and we're not supposed to be eating white bread, so... I it, know, I love yes. that question. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes, it, it, I, I
2: make I make challah with white flour, and I uh, have come back to this. I tried... Because you're right, I, being a physician, I thought, okay, I have to make this quote healthy. And so I tried to substitute whole wheat flour in this recipe, and that was my mistake. Okay, remember from, from the beginning, I'm not a baker, so I didn't appreciate, sometimes you just can't swap ingredients, and I didn't choose a recipe with whole wheat flour, I just tried to put whole wheat flour in this recipe. And if I tell you how bad the challah tasted <laughs> when I did that, <laughs> so... Um, yeah, that didn't work. And what I realized was actually this wonderful lesson, and it's a great reminder, and it's something that I need to be reminded of, so I'm grateful I have this weekly opportunity, and that is that everything in moderation, it's okay. The world is not going to stop spinning because I have a piece of challah on Friday nights, a piece of white bread on Friday nights, and it's good to be reminded of that. I think we can get really quickly, and particularly around food, we can get really... Um, controlling, and and con- I can't eat this, I can't eat this, and or I must eat this, and, and we started ascribing values to food, like this one's bad and this one's good, and I don't actually believe that. Um, food is food. With that said, I think that uh, food is medicine, and I'm passionate about that idea, and I believe that some foods do have the ability to promote disease, and some foods have the ability to promote health and well-being. So do I do I promote a diet of all white flour? Absolutely not. Why? Because it breaks down in our body as sugar, and too much sugar can cause inflammation and all kinds of other problems. So what I like about this recipe is it reminds me that it's okay. Once a week, I'm having a little bit of white flour, and that's okay. I'm not having white flour at every meal every day of the week because I don't think that's healthy. Um, I have learned though recently, and I, I'm going to have to try this, I haven't done this yet, but I have learned in the last few months again as I'm going around, people are sharing their recipes with me, and there are wonderful wonderful challah recipes out there that use all other kinds of flour. So there's, I've learned about spelt flour uh, challah and gluten-free challah and vegan challah. And so you certainly can get at this in lots of different ways. For now, I think I probably in general, I'm going to stick with the recipe that I use, knowing that honestly, most of us have a piece or two and it's okay.
0: So we're talking about balance it's not all or nothing you can never yes, have a piece of white exactly. bread exactly so you know you mentioned or you brought up you, you are bringing up nutrition what do you eat what do you eat in terms of your nutrition you know you're not it sounds like you're obviously not obsessed with one diet over another but no. you are and, aware. and if i were to have yeah. to
2: right if i were going to have to hang my hat on a diet i i like the mediterranean diet i think Not only does it taste really good, lots of whole fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lean protein, some fish, olive oil, nuts, things like that. Um, I think it's not only tasty, but it's also there's a lot of um, science behind it, and that's great. So I eat a pretty varied and um, hopefully healthy diet. I don't like a lot of packaged and processed foods, and it helps because I love to cook. So I make dinner most nights, and I think that's really fun. Um, but it's also much healthier because I know exactly what I'm putting in to to what we eat.
0: What about growing up? What kind of foods did you eat? What, I mean, you grew up in your family of origin. And what, yeah. Was, what did Yeah. So talk to us about that.
2: Um, we had family dinner every night. My mom made... Family dinner every night, and it was absolutely wonderful. And it, and I have tried to continue that tradition. I think there's, there's something really fantastic about that. Um, so we we ate a really wonderful, healthy diet. It was great.
0: Would but you, I, I'm assuming, and I probably shouldn't assume, but you wouldn't define it necessarily as a Mediterranean diet, or would you? No, I don't
2: even. No, probably not. Although maybe in hindsight. No, no, I guess actually you're right. Um, we certainly weren't doing a lot of whole grain in the 70s. <laughs> um, I, I'm from the Midwest, so we were, we were not doing that. But um, lots of fruits and vegetables. You know, the food was different then, you know, in the sense that things like high fructose corn syrup were just coming in into vogue. So the, the types of foods that we were eating in my early childhood are different than what my kids grew up on because yeah, the that, food in America has changed.
0: Yeah, I think and that's I think true.
2: What I like about the HALA too, you know, I, 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 when I went to med school, we had an hour of nutrition, maybe. I mean, we just didn't have nutrition 25 years ago in med school. Um, and it wasn't until I was at the Wellness Institute at the Cleveland Clinic that I really began to learn about nutrition. I was really fortunate to be uh, working in a program to treat chronic disease through lifestyle, stress management, nutrition, and exercise. And the dietitian on our staff took us grocery shopping. And I thought, having been at this point, you know, out in the world and buying my groceries for probably 20 years, I thought I knew how to grocery shop. Don't you just go in the store, pick out what you need and pay for it and leave. And it turns out I was wrong. And she walked us around the grocery store and explained how we should shop the perimeter, the edges of the grocery store, and not necessarily so much focused on the aisles. And why? Because walking up and down the aisles, that's where the chips are and the crackers and all those sort of packaged processed foods that are full of ingredients that you don't necessarily want to put in your body. And this gets me to bread, which gets me to challah. So we walked down the cereal and bread aisle, and she picked up a loaf of sandwich bread And she held it up and turned it over and said, look at these ingredients. And the ingredients spanned the entire back of the package. And I can't begin to pronounce most of them. I have no idea what was in that bread. I mean, this chemical and that chemical, and I don't even know. But in the challah that I make on Fridays, there are six ingredients, and I can pronounce them. Salt, sugar, oil, yeast, flour, and eggs. That's it. I know what I'm putting in my body and what I'm feeding my family. And I really appreciate that. And I encourage my patients to try and eat more whole foods as well.
0: Well, that's great advice because walking the perimeter, I do do that and try not to get in the middle. And Yay. you're absolutely, <laughs> and you're, and I say I try, and I, I do most of the time. But that thing well, about and reading there's good the-
1: things, by the way,
0: the
2: perimeter. I mean, that's where yeah. the beans are, for example. Yeah,
0: all good but- stuff, and a lot of organic foods, and all kinds of things, a lot of choices. But that thing about yeah. reading the label—if there's more than like three things, I usually for bread, even. Um, and the label then I'm kind of maybe I shouldn't get this if it's it should have maybe maybe it does have salt maybe it has uh uh you know the ingredients you need for bread and maybe one other thing and that's it but if it has a lot of different like you say a lot of different kinds of descriptions that I don't even you know can't even understand I put it back and I really do that I think that's really good advice it's easy to do. Because you can, uh, but what, then we have only, we don't have that much time left, but what about people always say, or there's this kind of, and I don't think this is true, but it's it's too expensive to shop the perimeter. It's to, you know, processed foods are less expensive. So that's you know why what? I'm going to disagree.
2: It. I'm going to disagree. I disagree
0: too. We are yeah.
2: so fortunate in 2018 that, wow, by the way, I'm not going to be able to say that much longer. That's kind of cool. It's December. Um, mm. We are so fortunate that. There are a huge variety of foods across different price points. You can buy frozen organic fruits and vegetables, for example, with the store label, not a fancy label. I mean, just the the actual grocery store's sort of in-house label. And those are probably more nutritious for you than some of the fresh fruits and vegetables that you buy because they are flash frozen when they're picked, so that's when they have the most nutrients. That are that are as opposed to traveling across the country, you know, in a truck, and then you getting them a couple weeks later. So I and you can get lots of canned beans, for example, and things like that. That with just the the store label. So I I I'm with you that luckily now I think across a variety of price points you can eat really well in general. Obviously, it's not it's not always that case, and certainly that there are issues sometimes depending where you live. But in general, in general, I think.
0: No, yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, you those organic vegetables. You'll look at it. You're going to buy peas. It just says peas on the label. Maybe sometimes water uh, somehow, right. for whatever reason, but that's it. And it doesn't have all the rest of the stuff. So, uh, yes, you're right. 2018, you can do that and you can pick and choose. And we have it's, so many options. Yes. And we have. Yeah. So one last question. We have a couple minutes left. Yeah. Uh, the reaction of your kids, your family to your book. Oh,
2: it's been so exciting. Thank you. It has been really, really fun. I've never done anything like this. So this was a new I, a new thing for everyone. And our kids have been so supportive. And it's been really fun. They've come to a bunch of the book events. And it's been great. Um, they have just been really, really wonderful. And I, if they hadn't eaten the hollow the first day, there wouldn't have even been a second hollow. So I really owe it all to them. And <laughs> I'm just thrilled to be on this journey with them. It's
0: been really fun. their mom wrote a book. They're getting more press from that than being a physician, (laughs) probably. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, also you mentioned the Cleveland Clinic, and that's where they took you out and uh, walked you around the grocery store and told you what to buy. You know, that's, I go to that website a lot. I think there's a lot of good information. I'm sort of, maybe I'm giving them a plug, but they have a really good uh, newsletter and and, and online information. I find that uh, uh, somehow I've sort of, yeah, I go to that. But give us a website that we can go to for the book. For the book and for you. you you Maybe you have a couple. Thank you.
2: Yep. I can be found at at a variety of places. So my website is HouseCallsForWellness.com. And I have an Instagram handle with that same handle, House Calls for Wellness. And I post a tip every morning. I also have a Facebook page, Beth Ricconati Author. And the book is available where books are sold and, of course, on Amazon.
0: Great. So It was great having you on the show today. Lots of good information. The title of the book is Braided, A Journey of a Thousand Hollas." And we've been talking to Beth Ricconati, MD, physician and author. Have a great great holidays. You can, I mean, you're prepared, I assume. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much. And you (laughs)
2: too. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today.
0: Great. Thanks.